like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Last time on Silenced. Whenever you speak your mind, you're never safe. They would come to see who's demonstrating against uh, the Duvalier so that our names could be put, placed on the black book, like Le Livre Noir. It went from being, here's a murder that no one has solved yet, to this is a campaign of murder targeting Creole language broadcasters. So it really sort of raised the question of how much farther is this going to go? From 1974 to 1991, when he passed away, we were always together. That's Jean-Rodrigue Marcellus, a former city councilman of North Miami, talking about his best friend, Fritz Dorr. Growing up in Haiti, they were more like brothers. Marcellus lived with Fritz's family when his own moved out of the city. They become my surrogate parents. Me and Fritz, we never fight. Fritz was so wise. Marcellus looked up to Fritz. From an early age, and despite his short stature, Fritz was clearly a leader with deep convictions. And growing up during the Duvalier regime, that got him into trouble. In the late 70s, he was an ambitious 21-year-old who'd been selected for a program to identify the next generation of Haitian educators. At the end of the program, the students gathered to find out whether they'd gotten a job. There was excitement and tension in the room. Then, Fritz got incredible news. He'd achieved the highest honor. He was going to be a school principal. They told Fritz there'd be a national event to honor him. Even the president of Haiti would be there. But when Fritz heard that news, his demeanor changed immediately. And Fritz says, he said, I'm not going to be on that, on that celebration with baby dog Duvalier. A man like me cannot be with that man. The room fell silent. Right there, in front of hundreds of people, 
Fritz had stepped over an uncrossable line. He criticised the Duvalier. He and Marcellus left in a hurry. It wasn't even 15 minutes later that the whispers started. Marcellus says an enforcer, a Tonton Macoot, had been at the event and heard Fritz's declaration against Duvalier. Now the Macoot was out for revenge. When that man went after him, we know exactly what time was it. Time for them to kill us. Fritz's parents acted fast. They hid Fritz away and pulled together all the money they could for two seats on a boat heading from Haiti to Miami. One for Fritz and one for Marcellus. And he's not an easy... From Haiti to here, the ocean was rough. Rough. The two men joined the surge of tens of thousands of refugees who fled the Duvalier regime in small boats. It was very scary. 151 people was in that boat. There was a hurricane. One of the night, we thought the boat will crash little piece by little because it was so hard. But Marcellus and Fritz made it. After 14 days at sea, they arrived as refugees in Florida just after Christmas Day on December 27th, 1979. We came here on a Friday night and Saturday night, we already had the meeting with Father Jonjus. When we met with Father Gerard Jonjus, it was like a dream come true. Fritz quickly became a leader in Father Jonjus' movement, VAO. And on the radio in Florida, he'd become an outspoken critic of the Duvaliers. But soon after their perilous journey, he and Marcellus would learn that Miami was not as safe as they thought. They can kill us, any one of us, at any time. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, this is Silence. I'm Oz Voloshin. And I'm Anna Arana. This is Episode 2, Truth and Bullets. documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. 
I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This was so involved in the community. I believe Father John just give him a setting where he can practice what he loved the most. Fritz became one of Father Jean Joux's most trusted followers and an inspiration to other young exiles. Fritz, though, was like a real organizer. People like Marlene Bastien. I liked him because I, when I first came here, and, and, and I saw people on the street and, and uh, speaking about against the dictatorship. I, I said, oh, I found my niche. Oh, my Lord. I was like in the right place. Fritz's day job was helping community members with immigration paperwork, but he spent his free time devoted to activism with VAO. He was very active in the uh, organizing to topple uh, the Duvalier dictatorship and also to advocate for the basic rights of due process of the Haitian refugees who were coming en masse at the time. But he was very outspoken. And he was on all the radios. He was a young, brash fearless young leader. For all his courage, Fritz was described as a gentle and unimposing person. He always wore a tie. He lived in a small house, taking care of his four children and a brother who was paralyzed. And he hosted a show called Radio VAO. WLQY 1320 AM. This is the most well-listening radio in the Haitian community. This is Tony John Tenort. He was Fritz's co-host. Father John Juice had asked both of them to start the show because he wanted a media platform where they could fully control the message. Tony, what is very important. We think that the people are always there. Our first program started, for, if I remember, it's 1988 or 1989. I was pretty young back then. Tony was in charge of fundraising. They needed money for the airtime. They paid the station a couple of hundred dollars per hour. He liked to fight for a cause, always fighting for a cause. What did his voice sound like? <laughs> yeah, loud. I don't know, maybe if you're short, you like to talk loud to get... Attention. <laughs> it was a great it was a great moment. It was a great time because it was a lot of hope in the air for us here and in Haiti. When Jean-Bertrand Aristide emerged as a candidate in the presidential election, 
Tony and Fritz became vocal supporters on the Miami airwaves. We're going to put somebody we know from us, from our group, to become president of the country. After Aristide's landslide victory, it seemed in that brief moment like Vallejo's allies had won in Haiti. Refugees like Tony and Fritz imagined the Haiti that Aristide had promised actually becoming real. He'd said he'd make radical change. Maybe they could even move back home. Tony and Fritz celebrated Aristide's victory at a huge street party in Miami, alongside one of the movement's other broadcasters, Jean-Claude Olivier, also known as Division Star. But Aristide's enemies hadn't gone away, and they weren't just going to lie down. A few short weeks after the election, there was a coup attempt to unseat the new president. In Haiti today, another coup attempt by a former supporter of the dictator Baby Doc Duvalier, but loyalist troops managed to storm the presidential palace and arrested Roger Lafontaine and his followers. At least 37 people were killed, however. Seven were lynched. It failed, but it stoked the ongoing battles on the radio in Little Haiti. On one side, Tony and Fritz and other pro-Aristide broadcasters speaking for change, for democracy. On the other side, pro-military voices, often representing Haiti's moneyed interests, fighting for the status quo. They had the radio show, look, they got money. They got money. This show brought the good life for the bourgeois in Haiti is. The message was, do not, don't talk about change too much. And then, less than two weeks after Aristide's inauguration in February 1991, the battle on the airwaves Move to the streets. Vallejo broadcaster Jean-Claude Olivier was gunned down outside the Chateau Club in his white suit, roses in hand. Tony says he and Fritz had heard whispers about a hit list of enemies of the military regime, what Marlene had called the Black Book. And word was that Fritz's name was on the list. But it wasn't clear if it was just a rumour. Then... Fritz started getting anonymous death threats. Threats like, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. You talk too much, too much garbage on the radio and we, don't, we want no change. You got to pay for it. Tony remembers these threats ratcheting up, called in with increasing ferocity to the radio show. Someone even came to the station with a gun. We were not afraid. We, were continue, we continue to talk. As a matter of fact, we continue to talk. Their family and friends pleaded with them to be careful but the threats didn't face them. Little Haiti is our home. Nothing will happen to us. At around 8pm on March 15th, Tony drove to the Dixie Express Driving School, right across the street from the Caribbean market in the heart of Little Haiti. Fritz ran his immigration business out of the driving school. And that night, he happened to be working on Tony's brother's case. As a matter of fact, my little brother was with him. My little brother was with him. Tony was at the driving school to pick up Fritz for a VAO meeting. He took us to the location. Right there, my car. And I opened the door. Tony expected Fritz to jump in his car. I come there to get him because it was in the air that we were going to be attacked, and we, we may get killed. But that night, Fritz told Tony to go on without him. So Tony went to the meeting, thinking Fritz would soon walk through the door to join him. 
it was inside Veo, the building in 54th Street. It was full of people, close to 100. Not long after the meeting started, the door banged open and someone burst into the room. He said, Fuzgachat! Fuzgachat! The room went cold. The room went cold. And, and uh, people started running the street and go back to 59th Street. When we got to 59th Street, the ambulance was right there. Tony saw Fritz was still conscious. He rushed over. Are you all right? He said, yeah, oh, okay, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. He got to the hospital live. He got to the hospital live. Then all the doctors, I remember that day, all the doctors, many, three or four doctors rushed into the Jackson. The doctor come out. When I saw the, the doctor's face, and the doctor saying, they start shaking their head like this, and they say, Fritz is gone. They say, Fritz is gone. It was that Monday night when you go to the radio show. That thing, that was a tough moment for all of us. At the first radio VAO broadcast without Fritz, there was a void next to the microphone where Fritz usually stood. That was the toughest day for all of us. When we got to go that, do, do that show without him. Yeah. couldn't believe it. I couldn't. He was at the center almost every day. I was in shock. I was, it was surreal. It's so powerful, so strong, so energetic, so full of life. I could not believe that he died. Fritz had been cut down in his prime less than a month after Jean-Claude Olivier. Tony and the others from VAO were haunted by the murders. Somebody, someone else is going to get killed. They said someone else is going to get killed. The question was... Who's next? In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really not only struck a blow against these broadcasters and the causes they were advocating, but the the community itself. This is Harold Moss again, the Miami Herald reporter who was following the crimes on Creole Radio. He was struck in particular by the symbolic location of Fritz's murder, right in the heart of Little Haiti. It chipped away at whatever remaining doubts there were that um, Jean-Claude Olivier's killing had been political because it was just too much of a coincidence that they both expressed support of uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. The Haitian community knew how dangerous it could be to speak out against the dictatorship or the military back home. That's why Fritz and Marlene and so many others had left Haiti in the first place. But with these killings, the fear was growing that even in exile, on American soil, on the streets of Miami, they were not safe to speak freely that their enemies were still close at hand. Back in Haiti, other journalists were following the cases intently. Michelle Montas and her husband ran the country's best-known independent radio station, Radio Haiti, it was the place where Marlene had come to complain about not being allowed to study under street lamps, the interview that forced her into exile. Michelle's husband, the iconic journalist Jean-Dominique, had a catchphrase. You cannot kill the truth with a bullet. Fritz had been inspired by Jean-Dominique and would listen to broadcasts of Radio Haiti from across the water. Now, the same journalists he looked up to were covering his murder. When we interviewed Michelle, she played us the segment. That's you. That's me. And what are you saying? I was um, announcing the clip saying that March 15, the Fritz door is killed. Okay? So in that, that recording must have been on March 16 or 17. On that broadcast, Father John Schuss raised the community's theory about the murders. They had angered their political enemies, and that's why they were killed. What if the motive for the murder came from Haiti? What if the murderer himself had crossed the ocean? Talking about the fact that these assassins would have left Haiti to go to Miami. Hypothesis. Hypothesis. We at Vallejo, we know that this will not this will not go unpunished because Vallejo is everywhere. Vallejo is everywhere in the Haitian community. And already the, the people around Fritz Door have given a lot of information. If the uh, Miami police decides to do its work, the assassin will be in prison very soon. If the Miami police decides to do its work, it was a big if. A big if, but um, why the if at all, Anna? Father John Just and the rest of AAO 
were not really fully trusting what the Miami Police Department was doing. I think back in Haiti, you see anyone in a uniform, and they were allies of the dictatorship and enemies of the democratic movement that they were pushing forward. In Miami, the white officers and superiors could not make sense of the feuds that immigrants actually harbored in their communities. But there were also a number of Haitian-American cops. Wearing the uniform gives pause to a community that has been so bruised, like the Haitian community at that time, and maybe even now. Communities know each other. They know where they come from. They know their last names. They know their families. And then later we find that that there were some connections that maybe led some of the members of the community to think, well, should we trust them? Connections, in other words, between the Haitian-American cops in Miami and military families back home. Yes. Despite the community's distrust, the police did put together a task force to investigate both killings, and they assigned all the Creole-speaking officers they could find to the case. My Creole sucks. It's, it's not like, it's not like, I mean, if I start speaking it, I'll probably make you laugh, you know. My understanding is great. Speaking it is poor, but the whole focus is, can you relate? Yes, 199%. That's Officer Raymond Carville. He came from a Haitian family but grew up in the Bahamas. He was assigned to the task force and told us they work practically 24-7 to solve these cases. The way we got involved, words started to circulate. That It was was more than just a, I hate to be so blunt, but typical homicide. It was, you know, politically motivated. We got to put a stop to it because who knows who's next. Because those two individuals were high-profile speakers in the Haitian community. People listen to them. The Miami PD also set up a Creole-language hotline. Leads started pouring in. Most of the callers believed that the murders were politically motivated, but the theories about who was involved varied. Was the hit ordered from Haiti or from Miami? Did the hitman come from Port-au-Prince or was he already in Florida? We were in Little Haiti and we were, I mean, it was there almost... Other than a few hours of sleep, we were there nonstop. Day in and day out, Raymond says, they fielded calls and chased leads. Some tips were stranger than others. A witness claimed she saw a man in a long wig fleeing the scene of Fritz's murder. We were told that, though odd, it struck some as a clue. Dressing as women had been a classic disguise of the Tonton Macoutes. Another claimed the getaway car had a New Jersey license plate. Had the killers come from out of state? According to an officer's deposition, cops also noticed a post-it note found on the scene on Fritz's briefcase. It had the name of a Miami Herald reporter scribbled on it. Was Fritz about to share something that someone wanted to keep secret? None of these details led anywhere. Then, three weeks after Fritz was shot, a breakthrough. At 1000 hours, Detective Watkins and I went to Metro-Dade headquarters. This is an actor reading from a copy of the incident report from the Miami PD. We got our hands on it after a freedom of information request. It's marked, for internal use only, not suitable for public release. And it's all marked up with blacked out redactions. But it reveals a major clue. 
the bullets recovered from the bodies of Fritz Dorr and Jean-Claude Olivier matched. Both men were killed with the same gun. The bullets were 38mm projectiles, and the report said they could have come from a Lama, Ruger, Smith & Wesson, Sport Arms, or Taurus, a revolver. A gun with a spinning barrel that allowed multiple large and deadly bullets to be fired fast. The kind of gun you'd see in a gangster movie. When police canvassed the neighborhood, they found this type of bullet embedded in a tree that appeared to have been used for target practice. This information seemed to confirm what many in the community had been saying all along. The killings were connected. But distrust of the police was becoming a major obstacle to investigation. Leads quickly dried up. People just didn't want to talk. Redacted could offer no further information. Redacted denied any involvement in the homicide of Fritz Dorr or Jean-Claude Olivier. The hunt for the killer seemed to be going nowhere. There were those in Little Haiti who did not believe that the police would ever truly get to the bottom of it all. So about a month after Fritz's killing... Little Haiti took to the streets in anger. A thousand people marched with candles to protest the way the investigation was being handled. They carried signs. One sign read, Police, FBI, stop protecting Tonton Makoud. A few weeks later, a major break in the case appeared in the form of a guy named Glossy Bruce Joseph. Joseph was in a Miami-Dade jail cell for a totally unrelated crime when officers from the task force showed up to interview him. This is what they learned, according to the police report. Joseph said that he was to be paid $5,000 to watch the driving school for Fritz Dorr when he leaves work. Glossy had a bunch of knowledge about the case, including knowing where Fritz was that night. And he gave the police... A tidy motive. Joseph states that Fritz Dorr was killed over a 19-kilogram cocaine deal where 9 kilograms were stolen. A drug deal gone bad. This was territory the police were familiar with. In fact, at the time in Miami, if a police officer interacted with someone in Little Haiti, it often had something to do with drugs. The picture all started to fit, at least to the investigators. Just like with Jean-Claude Olivier, the spectre of drugs showed up. After the interview, Joseph was immediately brought into the homicide division. And that's when he had a change of heart. While at the homicide office, Joseph told us that he had been lying, that he had not been truthful on what he had said, and that he had made the whole story up. The police report is a head spinner of a document. First, Lossie Bruce confesses to knowledge of the murder. Then he says he's lying. Then detectives question him for a few more hours and give him an inconclusive polygraph test. And Lossie Bruce goes back to his original story. Over the next few days, he changed his story back and forth several more times, before the report concluded on May 23rd, 1991, pretty inconclusively. It says the case should be cleared by the arrest of Lossie Bruce Joseph, but also that it will remain under current investigation, and that several leads are being followed. So Anna, this is where the two-month investigation landed, with the arrests of Glossy Bruce Joseph, who was already in jail and who didn't even confess to pulling the trigger, just for being a lookout when Fritz was shot over some stolen cocaine. When I heard and read about Glossy Bruce, I just thought, this is weird. 
it doesn't really make sense to me. My feeling was there was pressure on the police department to close the investigation. It was expensive. It was two months. It was creating a lot of hassles within the community, and they wanted to save face. It also seemed to be easier for the investigators to follow this confession rather than keep digging. The issue of drugs was big, and it was big in the community, so they figured they would put it all together, and then that way the case may go away. I never bought this idea that these killings were about drugs. It makes me wonder, why did it happen? What did they think, that it was just going to go away? The idea that Fritz Dorr would be uh, mixed up in the drug trade just seemed preposterous to me. In fact, it began to emerge that it was Fritz's enemies who were involved in the drug trade. That's next time on Silenced. We should note that we tried to get comment from Glossy Bruce Joseph, but we couldn't locate him. Silenced is a Kaleidoscope content original, produced by Margaret Katcher, Jen Kinney, and Padmini Ragunov. Research assistance from Sibylla Phipps, Jeremy Bigwood, and Kira Sinis. Edited by Lacey Roberts. Executive produced by Kate Osborne. Reported and hosted by Anna Arana and me, Osvaloshin. Music by Oliver Rodigan, a.k.a. Cadenza. Mix and sound design by Kyle Murdoch. Deposition actor was Brian McCauley-Johnson. Thanks to Mangesh Hatikada, Kostas Linus and Vahini Shuri. Our executive producers at iHeart are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. Special thanks to Carl Just, Jacqueline Charles, Edouard Duval-Carrier, and Dean Richards. And at iHeart, thanks to Connell Byrne and Bob Pittman. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and subscribe to our channel. Thank you. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies 
Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.